I celebrated a birthday recently, and I know my wife gets my love language because this is what we did for my birthday. We went rafting, then we went mountain biking, then we went caving. I, mean, I felt loved, right? I felt really loved. So uh, I don't know how you're doing. I'm already happy at summer. I'm already, we're already in the swing of things, right, with all of that. So uh, it's good to see everybody this morning. You're all looking good. Today is Trinity Sunday. It's an exciting day. And um, you know, I want to start off by telling a kind of embarrassing thing. I don't, I don't know what the hardest class you ever had in school, but my hardest class was trigonometry in college. And I don't know if it was the teacher, the content, or just what was going on in here, but I, I hated that class. Like, I struggled through that class. And, 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 I mean, when it was done, I never, ever wanted to think about trigonometry ever again. It made my brain hurt. Well, today, like I said, is Trinity Sunday, and Trinity comes from the Latin word. It just simply means threeness, and it's, it's the Christian view that God reveals God's self as Father, Son, and Spirit. Or to put it in the language of the creedal formula, God is one being and three persons. You know, let's all just say that together. Ready? God is one being and three persons. Let's say it one more time. God is one being and three persons. Okay. The reason why these creedal formulas, formulas exist is so that you don't ever say something that you wouldn't mean to say if you were actually thinking correctly, okay? So I'm just going to give that little nugget. Um, you need to, we need to have two more sermons before I come back and unpack all that. But um, that's not where I'm going today. But it's good for at least us to nail that down. Now, if we were to give a survey, my guess would be that the majority of us uh, have never uh, actually had a sermon on the Trinity, Right? Uh, and, and the reason, I mean, we've had lots of sermons on the prodigal son and all this stuff, but we don't typically have sermons on the Trinity. And I'm guessing that the reason that is, is that for most of us, and pastors included, when we think of the Trinity, we think a lot like we would think of like theological trigonometry. It's just like something that makes your brain hurt. It's something that you, you really, once you're like, this is just, I don't want to think about this again. It's like some kind of new math. One and one and one is one. Like, you know, it's one of those weird things that Christians believe. You're just going to have to swallow this. If you're part of the team, deal with it now. And that's just what we believe. And you're just like, okay, all right. And so what we tend to do is we tend to avoid it. You know, we see it as this Rubik's Cube that there's only a few freaks have kind of figured out, a few geniuses out there. And for the rest of us, you know, we just want to avoid that. It embarrasses us. It's weird. Um, or we, we immediately move into uh, analogies. You know, we try to just put it down on the bottom shelf as soon as we can, right? So, well, let's just talk about shamrocks right now, okay? <laughs> like, somebody mentions the trains, like, let's talk about ice floating in water with steam. Like, we just want to immediately go to some kind of analogy. You know, it's, it's an apple. It's got the skin. It's got the flesh. It's got the core. It's an apple. That's it. We're done. Let's move on. Can we move on? This is getting scary, right? That's how we kind of approach it. It's this standalone, weird, odd fixture of the Christian faith system. Uh, and frankly, it makes our brains hurt. Well, what I want to convince you of this morning, and all sermons are arguments, okay? If you're new to Christianity, we get together and somebody argues every Sunday, okay? So I'm going to give an argument this morning. What I want to convince you of, and, and we're a thinking group, by the way, if you're new. We like to have arguments. We like to discuss. We like to think. What I'm going to try to convince you of this morning is that actually, far from it being a standalone weird view, some kind of secret that a few kind of very smart people have figured out but none of us understand, that actually the doctrine of the Trinity is at the very heart of the message of the Bible. So the next question then is, where is it revealed in the Bible? Where is the Trinity revealed? 
Um, uh, is the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament? Okay. B.B. Uh, Warfield, who was a famous theologian, said that, that the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament is kind of like walking into a beautifully furnished room. Gorgeous room, amazing room. I don't know, Versailles, or I don't know what you're thinking of, okay? Definitely not my house, but a beautifully furnished room. And, but the problem is the lights are so dim that all you can do is just kind of make out the faintest kind of outlines. That's what the Trinity is like in the Old Testament. The Trinity is adumbrated. That's a beautiful word that we never use, but you can see the word umbrella in there, which means something that casts a shadow. Adumbrated means that the Trinity is casting a shadow in the Old Testament. So you have these kind of faint outlines of the Trinity. Um, you see it in the story of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, where God creates and the Spirit is hovering. The Spirit of God is hovering. And the Word of God comes forth and then generates change within the chaotic waters. So the Spirit and the Word are there forming. And it's almost like these are almost their own thing, right? You see that taking place. But by and large, it's very shadowy. So we have things like Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath, the ruach, the spirit, by the breath of his mouth, their hosts. Breath is very important. Spirit, the, the idea is that the Holy Spirit is oftentimes associated with the breath of God. Okay? So there's Old Testament shadow of the Trinity. And in fact, you are right now looking at an Old Testament shadow of the Trinity. We have one actually right here at Christ Church. Uh, Actually, right up here, okay? Uh, my, my little sketch here, this is actually from a Ukrainian artist that did a take on a Russian artist, Rublov's uh, famous uh, icon, the Trinity, okay? And actually, right up here, we have, I actually put it right here, we actually have a take on that Old Testament, Genesis 18 passage, where there's three visitors that come to Abraham. And it was with the coming of Christ that we finally find, Origen started this, a Christian tradition of reading those three angels as actually the Trinity. So this is a complex kind of, I, of course, this is about the announcement of Jesus coming, but it's not an accident. They chose three angels, right? And if you want to see, you have, here you have on this side, you have, uh, this is, this could be taken as uh, an image of Jesus on the right hand of the Father, the Father who sends the Son and the Spirit. Here's Jesus, and he is I think this actually kind of looks like he's in the garden praying. Of course, here's the cross that foreshadows everything up there at the top. And then the Spirit is the breath of God descending down, right? And the Father, of course, is the one who sends. So it's faint. Like, you, you may have never noticed that before, right? That's like the Old Testament, this faint kind of outline. Some of you are going to spend the rest of this message now looking at that. I can see where you're looking, just so you know, okay? All right. So is the Trinity found in the New Testament? is a trinity found in the New Testament. Here you have to be careful because by the time we get to the New Testament, the trinity is already assumed in the New Testament. By the time we get to the New Testament, it's like that, it's like that uh, you know, you open up the New Testament and you go, okay, where is that silver bullet verse that's going to say, you know, my dear brothers and sisters, let me now help you. I want to be sure you understand that God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're not going to find that verse. See, once we get the New Testament, the Trinity is the operating system of the writers of the New Testament. It's so deeply assumed within the writings of the New Testament that it's not something that's explicit. Uh, it's like that, uh, that old uh, uh, illustration, there's two young fish swimming, and an old fish swim by and says, uh, you know, good morning, guys, how's the water? And then once he leaves, the young fish say, what's water? Right? You read the New Testament, and the Trinity's everywhere, 
but you can easily miss the Trinity. Where does the Trinity show up? The Trinity shows up technically between the two Testaments. That's where the Trinity is revealed. The Trinity is revealed with the coming of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit who is outpoured. And what this means is that Christianity is unique because Christianity, unlike other religions, doesn't believe that the greatest moment in history is the arrival of a book with truth in it. The greatest moment of history is the arrival of God. The greatest moment of history is the arrival of God, both Son and Spirit. And so that's where we find the Trinity. And the reason I point this out is because the Trinity is assumed in the New Testament. And therefore, we can oftentimes miss the forest from all the trees. It's very easy. And we do this, right? We do this because we tend to think of uh, things as a verse-sized reality. That's one of the marks of us as Christians. We like to read the Bible. We like to read it verse by verse so we don't miss one thing. So we, and that's a good practice because you don't want to skip over the parts that make you feel uncomfortable. You know, you want to go to your favorite parts, you know. Uh, that's, that's, you know, you don't want to cherry pick the Bible. You want to get to the, but the problem with this verse by verse kind of mentality is that we go to the Bible looking for the silver bullet Trinity verse and we're like, well, where is it? You know, I'm in an argument with somebody. Where's my silver bullet Trinity verse? By the way, the verses were given, uh, they were actually put into the Bible in the 16th century. So, um, (laughs) you know, we might not be thinking actually the way that the writers of the Bible thought, you know. So there's a real problem here is that we can miss the forest from all the trees. Um, there are, don't worry, there are some verse size descriptions of the Trinity, okay? Uh, but uh, because the fact that the Trinity is revealed at this unique point in history, we can miss it. Uh, Matthew Barrett in his book, Simply Trinity, writes, the Trinity is revealed at a unique point in history, the time between the Testaments. If the Trinity begins to come into full light with the incarnation of the Son, Christ Jesus, then God's full revelation of his triune identity occurs after the writing of the Old Testament, but before the writing of the New Testament. So I, I just threw that in there so you could see. That's a good book, by the way, Simply Trinity. And see, I'm, I'm not the only person saying this, so there you go. So there, yeah, there are, don't worry, there are some verse-size declarations of the Trinity. And one of them is one that we say all the time here at Christ Church. It's our favorite benediction. The amazing grace of the Master, Jesus Christ. The extravagant love of God. It doesn't say God the Father there. Okay, we're going to talk about that. But the, the extravagant love of God and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. I include Father there because I happen to know that there's this kind of impulse among John and among Paul and the whole New Testament gang where oftentimes, and we're going to see this this morning, when we hear the word God, underneath it is God the Father. Uh, Here's a really good one, okay, if you want just one verse that gives you the Trinity. Very important verse. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There you go. I didn't have to take God and turn it into Father right there, okay? But just look at this, this verse. If you just simply park on this, you're still going to miss things. Because, really, this verse is monumental, not just simply because it includes all the right words, because of where it is. It's at the very culmination of Matthew's gospel. It's the climax of his gospel. And so you can see here that we've got this Trinitarian formula, baptizing them in the name, that's singular, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can you see there's a singularity and then a plurality there, right? But this is powerful once we realize where this fits. It fits within Matthew's gospel. There's been a buildup throughout all 28 chapters. You know, we have already in Matthew 1, 23, this is Emmanuel, God with us, okay? 
By the time we get to chapter 3, we have another baptism, the other baptism that shadows this baptism. Whose baptism is that? That's the baptism of Jesus. And what happens when Jesus is baptized? We hear a voice from heaven, from the Father. This is my beloved son. Okay? People that have sons are fathers. Okay? <laughs> this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit descends like a dove. Matthew does that intentionally. So that by the time we get to Matthew 28 and we get the Trinitarian formula, what we get is a reminder that what we're supposed to do is we are to be about the, the, the process of making followers who themselves are immersed in the Trinitarian understanding of who God is. Um, and so uh, this is what we're to do, immerse people into this Trinitarian life. So when we demand everything uh, to be versized, we can miss the forest from the trees. Now there are a wealth of passages on the Trinity. I'm just going to give you a, a helpful hermeneutic to find these passages because we are blinded. We immediately think Trinity, we go off into shamrocks and we go off into ice that's in the water. And you, No, no, no. Like, we really need to see the Trinity. It's in the Bible. It's all over. So here's some basic, and I get this from a guy named Scott Swain in his book, uh, Introduction to the Trinity, um, the Trinity and Introduction. And so the, here are three kind of passages that speak of the Trinity. First, there's inter-Trinitarian conversation passages, okay? Creation reveals many things about God. But one thing it doesn't reveal is the inner life of God, okay? The Trinity is one of those things that's not revealed in creation, all right? You can reveal that there's a maker. You can reveal that maker is intelligent, powerful, all these things. But the Trinity is internal to the life of God. And so in order to know that, we have to actually have God tell us that God is Trinity, God needs to reveal that, okay? And one of the ways God reveals that is God lets us eavesdrop on conversations amongst the persons of the Trinity. I don't know about you, but if I really wanted to find out what's really going on with my parents, I would sometimes eavesdrop, okay? Like that. But if my parents wanted me to know what's going on, they might decide to kind of talk really loudly if they knew I was eavesdropping <laughs> to inform me of what they wanted to inform me of, Okay? In Matthew 11, 25, 27, Jesus breaks out and prays saying, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You've hidden them from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus right here is revealing the relationship between the Father and the Son within the internal life of God to little children that will listen. Not to brilliant theologians. Who is the Father here? Well, the Father is the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of creation. But look what Jesus has. Jesus shares this authority. The Father has handed all things to him. So he is also the Lord of heaven and earth. And this anticipates Matthew 28, 19, which Jesus gives us in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Again, this is an anticipation building up to the end of Matthew, right? And so this is insider knowledge. The Trinity is insider knowledge. By naming themselves within our hearing, God is very strategically letting us know about God's internal relations as Father, Son, and Spirit. By the way, the largest inter-Trinitarian uh, conversation takes place in John 17. Amazing, John 17. Here's the point. The Trinity is God's revelation of his internal life. 
God is revealing who he is. Now, a verse I love is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What this tells us is three things. Number one, God has secrets. And not all those secrets are things that we couldn't understand. Some of them are things that we could understand, but God keeps those as secrets. How many of you want to know some of the secrets of God? Shame on you. Those are God's secrets. They belong to the Lord. Didn't you just hear me say that? They belong to him. How dare you? Okay. But God also grants us some of his secrets. He reveals those secrets. And those are the kind of secrets that we can understand and we can pass them on to our children. And I would say to you that the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those secrets of who God is that he has revealed to us, and he does that through his inter-Trinitarian conversations. And we can pass those on to our children, but we don't just have this as like a nice, oh yeah, you know, like, I mean, this is one of the dangers of being a theologian, like, oh, I know all these things, these secrets that God has given, us. I know them. Why do we know these secrets? For practical purposes, that we might actually live differently, Right? so that we might do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Every theologian should make that their first memory verse. Okay, so the first one is the inter-Trinitarian conversation. The second one is cosmic framework texts. These are, the, these are where basically the Trinity is set within the entire cosmos. God's work uh, within the cosmos is seen in relationship to the Trinity. Of course, we already talked about Genesis 1 Adambrates. You guys are all going to learn Adambrate today, right? I love that word. We need to bring Adambrate back, okay? I know it's a Jerry word, but I like it, okay? It, it shadows, you know, the Trinity. We see that. But when we get to John's prologue in the Gospel of John, verses 1 to 18, you know, John, what I love about him is that he goes all the way back to the beginning. I just have to throw this in here. You know, Mark, when he wants to, we have to talk about Jesus. Mark says, okay, let's go back to John the Baptist. He even goes to Isaiah, who prophesies John the Baptist. We get to Matthew, Matthew's like, oh, no, you're talking about Jesus. You got to go back to Abraham. We get to Luke. Luke says, oh, that's not far enough. We got it all back to Adam. But we get to the apostle John. He's like, boys, we're going to talk about Jesus. We got to go all the way back before creation. In the beginning was already the word. That's John. And in his prologue, he takes the Genesis account and he then fills it in. He sheds light on that dark room. And that's what he's doing here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it's Father's Day in a few weeks. I'm sure everybody's making big preparations, right, dads? We're sure of it. It's going to be an amazing day. We can hardly wait, right? Let's say it's Father's Day, and I have my father, Dominic, up here on the stage with me. And I say, you know, today I'm with Dominic, and you can all see that. And I want you also to know that I am Dominic. Okay. The witness, we had you with the witness, but when you added, you know, the, the, the wasness with the witness, now we got a problem, right? But that's what's happening here in John. It, it, the, the, the word is with God, but the word was God. Do you see what's happening here? John is filling in the Trinitarian relations as he re-narrates the Genesis text. And then he goes on and he says, no man, in the beginning was the word, the word was with that, 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 that word in Greek is prosopon, face-to-face. It's an idea of intimacy with God. And the word was God. And no man has seen God, the only begotten son, monogenes, okay? Only begotten. The only begotten son um, who is at the Father's side. 
So if you've ever seen Roman meals, people lay on their sides as they eat. And the picture here is that there's this deep intimacy, okay, where they're laying side by side, and then there's a face-to-face. There's a, this is like, you would only do this with someone that you had a deep intimacy with. And that's what John is portraying, this deep intimacy between the Son and the Father. And that's what we see in this cosmic, cosmic, um, re, uh, cosmic framework uh, text, this mutual love of the Father and the Son. It sets the entire cosmos within the framework of the Trinity. In other words, the Trinity explains the meaning and purpose the meaning and purpose of the entire cosmos. Let that just kind of sink in for a second. The final genre is redemptive mission texts. Redemptive mission texts. Um, and uh, I'm going to give you a redemptive mission text that you may have heard of before. For God so loved the world that he gave his monogoneus, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So which person of the Trinity is God in this text? Let's see if you've been listening. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, Which person of the Trinity um, uh, uh, has a son? What kind of a person is that? Well, it's a father. And so we've we've heard John 3.16 for so long that we don't even hear the Trinitarian echo that the father so loved the world that he gave his son. You can't even begin to articulate the basics of the Christian faith. You're already jumping in to Trinitarian language. And what does he do in this love? He sends the Son, okay? Um, And so uh, a friend of mine who's a a theologian, who's one of the top Trinitarian theologians in the world, former colleague of mine uh, when I worked at Biola, um, has said that 90% of the time when you see the word God in the New Testament, underneath it is God the Father, Do you see that we are missing so much of the deep Trinitarian structure of Scripture? So this is one of numerous redemptive texts. These are texts about the Father sending the Son to redeem humanity. Um, These are numerous. They're they're the most prolific. And so that's where I want to park in the time we have left today. That's where I want to park, okay? You guys thought I was about to wrap up the sermon. Sorry, man. That was just the intro, okay? That's where I want to park. When we think of the Trinity... Uh, we think that it is only for those who are wise and understanding. Jesus said, thank you, Father. You didn't reveal this to the wise and understanding. You didn't reveal this to the PhDs. Thank you, Father, that you've revealed this uh, to, to, to babes. We think it's speculation. We think it's one of those weird beliefs that you kind of have to swallow, those one-offs. We immediately jump into analogies. It's an egg. It's a three-leaf clover. It's whatever, water, different elements. But when the New Testament writers thought of the Trinity, and this is really what I want to have happen today, okay? This is really important. When the New Testament writers thought of the Trinity, they thought first and foremost of the gospel. That, that was the association they had in their minds. We think, you know, we think shamrocks, and we think eggs, and we think all kinds of things. They thought gospel. We think PhD in theology, who knows, Rubik's Cube of, you know, I can never solve that. They thought gospel. I find that interesting. I find that very interesting. And so I want to develop that by looking at the passage that was read by Noah today, uh, Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, look it, I already did it. I replaced God. I didn't do that because the Bible's inferior, but I wanted to elucidate what was going on there. In the fullness of time had come, the Father sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now let's first off notice what Paul is not doing here. Paul's not saying, okay, Galatians, I really want you to understand some important systematic theology, theology proper. Let's talk about the inner Trinitarian nature of who God is. Let me pull out a bunch of $20 Latin words for you, Galatians. What is Paul doing? Paul's talking about the gospel. Paul is talking about the gospel. See, Paul is, he, what he wants to do is he wants to say, hey, you are under the law. You are under the curse. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son and God sent his spirit. So when Paul teaches the gospel, Paul has a little thing going on. Paul can't teach the gospel without appealing to the Trinity. See, telling the story of the history of salvation for Paul, it, it, it was one and the same as talking about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And as he tells the story of the gospel, he can't help but tell us about the Trinity. The Father sent the Son so we could be adopted and then sent the Spirit so we could know we're adopted. Right? Abba, Father. Uh, and so, look at that. I made a triangle. Isn't that great? That, now we all feel relieved. Yeah, the Trinity is in the Bible. There's a triangle, okay? <laughs> you know, I did that, you know, just simply to elucidate this. By the way, you can do this too. It's really fun. You can create your own Trinity study Bible. And if you start paying attention, you're going to do this. It's really, a, it's a great exercise. You can put tri triangles all over your Bible. Okay? A lot of fun. I don't want to steal it from you. Okay? But the Trinity is bundled with the revelation of the gospel. And here in Galatians 4, 4 to 6, we see in the fullness of time, the Father sent his Son. I, I circled sent. I've made it red. I don't want you to miss that. In the fullness of time, the Father sent his Spirit. And these are necessary correlates within the mind of Paul. When Paul thought gospel, he thought of the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Now, think about it for a second. The Galatians had a problem, right? They started with faith and they wanted to end with works. And Paul's like, that's all wrong. You guys got it all wrong. And in Galatians 3 and 4, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but Paul has a three-point outline. He says, let me tell you why you got it all wrong. Point number one, Father. Point number two, the Son. Point number three, the Spirit. In other words, Paul comes along and he says, you've got it all wrong. The Father sends the Son who redeems us and then sends the Spirit to empower us. This refutes your works righteousness. Paul's argument is the Trinity. Paul does this over and over again. And once you start seeing this, you're like, oh my gosh, like, Paul thinks Trinity and gospel at the same time. Now, let's pay attention to this double sending. The Father accomplishes his plan of salvation, which he has worked out from eternity past and then implements in the fullness of time. How does he accomplish that? He, he accomplishes it by sending the Son and sending the Spirit. Okay? I did that too early. But now you know I've got a really cool diagram. Congratulations. <laughs> let's talk about these sendings, okay? Let's talk about these sendings, okay? Okay. Uh, these sendings, uh, I'm not just trying to be tricky here. This is really important. These sendings, okay, they used to call these the, the missio, the missions of the Son and the Spirit, okay? That was the old language for it because Latin missio means sending, okay? So it's, it's really profound. The Father gives the Son a missio, ascending, and the Father gives the Spirit a missio, ascending, okay? Um, and what this tells us is one thing immediately, that when we use the word missions, we talk about going on a mission, Right? That means we're going to cross 
a culture or some kind of boundary. We're going to get in a bus and go somewhere or whatever. We're going to cross some kind of boundary to talk about what God has done in Jesus Christ, okay? But this is just kind of a cool thing. This is just a side. This isn't the whole sermon. But it's really interesting that at the heart of what we do, before we ever had ascending, the Son and the Spirit had ascending, In the fourth century, if you would have said, you know, missions is really important, people in the church would have said, yes, it's very important that the Father sent the Son and the Spirit. Missions is very important. Because when they thought missions, they thought immediately of the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Irenaeus of Lyon, who was a disciple of the disciple of John, okay, that'd be pretty cool, right? Oh, yeah, you got the guy that wrote the gospel? Yeah, um, I'm a disciple of his disciple. It's like, that's cool. Like, he's my grandpa disciple. Anyways, um, That's cool. So he loved this double sending. And he came up with an image. I think actually, I would, if, you, if, you, if you have to have an analogy, you can leave with this one, okay? I don't want to hear anything about shamrocks over my, my donut hole. Okay, but you can leave with this one, all right? Irenaeus of Lyon said, you know what? The work of God is through the Son and the Spirit, those, those double sendings, is like the Father had two hands, the Son hand and the Spirit hand. And when the father wanted to do his work to clean up this mess in this world, he, he, he deployed his son hand and his spirit hand. What I like about this is that, number one, it shows us that the father got his hands dirty. The father was involved. You know, people say, like, how could this, how could this God create child abuse? Like, eh, you don't understand the doctrine of simplicity. You don't understand that actually what God was, God the father was deeply involved in the work of the son and the spirit. That, the, that you can't separate the works. Okay, that's a whole other sermon on the, on the uh, internal relations. But anyways, um, these two hands, the Father uses these two hands in order to take a hold of things. And in the fullness of times, he sends a son and he sends a spirit so that he can clean up this world. But these hands don't do the same thing. The Father is ambidextrous. He has this capacity to do something different with both hands. The Son hand is the hand of incarnation and replacement. The Son takes on our human nature and joins in union with us in our humanity. And then he replaces our failed attempts at humanity with his perfect humanity. The son's role is to say, okay, you sons of Adam and you daughters of Eve, you've blown this. You've made a big mess. Clearly, you're not displaying what normal humanity is. And he came and he gave us the first example of normal humanity. All of us live subhuman lives because of sin. And and so he lives the life we should have lived, and then he dies the death that we deserve because our sin alienates us from the very source of life, God. And and, and so the son dies the death we we deserve and frees us from the curse of the law, as Paul says in Galatians. But that's what the son hand does. But what does the spirit hand do? If the son hand replaces and incarnates, the spirit hand indwells and empowers What does the Spirit do? The Spirit comes, and instead of saying, you know what, you've blown it, forget it, let me take it from here, the Spirit says, you know what, I'm going to enter into your life. The Spirit says, I'm going to come along, and I am going to empower you to supernaturally live the same kind of life that the Son lived, that the Son has done in your stead, so that you can begin living the kind of life of the Son such that you can also, and also so you can know that you have been adopted as a son. I'm just going to say this right now. Some of you ladies are going, wait, I have to be a son? Yeah, you do, okay? Uh, when I use the word son, all it means is if you are male or female, you now share the status, okay? You share that status of, and, and you are now uh, related to in the same way that the first person of the Trinity relates to the second person of the Trinity. And if it makes you feel any better, ladies, I have to be the bride of Christ, okay? 
It, and I don't go say, well, I'm actually the groom of Christ. That gets a little weird, okay? Like, you just have to kind of make that shift. You can do it, okay? We all have to do that, all right? Uh, the, the Bible's an equal offender when it comes to these gender things. Um, but uh, the point is, is that there's cooperation, but there's a difference in their mission. Um, and these sendings are the key to salvation history, the salvation work. Um, and, and, and what does the Spirit do? Um, it causes to live like the Son to the glory of the Father, such that we cry out, Abba, Father. That's really where Paul's going with this in Galatians. Now, I gave you the missions, okay? I'm a teacher, right? This is like a teaching sermon, right? Some of you are like, yeah, okay, yeah. Do I get college credit? You don't get college credit, I'm sorry, okay? You get a theologian up for the sermon time, this is what happens, okay? I'm gonna give you one more fancy word, okay? I gave you missions, I'm gonna give you one more fancy word, and then you get the cool diagram that I stole from my friend uh, Fred, who I used to teach with, okay? Okay. we talked about how the Father in time, okay, has this plan in the fullness of time. It's there in Galatians. He has this plan that in the fullness of time, he's going to send forth his Son and his Spirit in order to redeem this broken world, okay? That's something that's going to take place. But, but what happens when that time comes? You know, you have to understand what this is assuming. The assuming is that the Father doesn't sit there and go like, oh no, what am I going to do? This world's messed up, and here I am. You know, I, 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 what am I going to do? I'm a non-Trinitarian, you know, monopersonal God. I got no help. No, in the fullness of time, the Father had determined to send the Son and the Spirit. The implication here is that the Father already has the Son and the Spirit with him such that he can implement this in the fullness of time. Um, the fact is that in the fullness of time, God sends the Son and the Spirit means that in the depth of eternity, the Father had the Son and the Spirit. There never was a time when the Father was without the Son and the Spirit. There never was a time when the Father and Son were not together and without the Spirit. This is something that has happened through all of eternity. And this is what's mind-blowing. If God had never needed, God had never created, God had never needed to enter into this world, never needed to send the Son and the Spirit the Father, Son, and Spirit would have always already been eternally in this relationship. It has nothing to do with us. The Trinity ultimately tells us that there's something true about who God is that that has nothing to do with us. It's like that moment when you're like, oh my gosh, like my parents had a life before I came along. (laughs) Like, Like, it doesn't revolve around me. The doctrine of the Trinity helps break us from our narcissistic assumption that puts God as entirely within history, always acting on our behalf. And so that's why I want to talk about not just the missions of God in time, but the processions that have eternally happened within God's stead. And this is where we're getting to the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, here's, here's this chart I stole from my friend Fred in his book, um, The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. That's a great title, right? Um, and it d- illustrates the processions and the missions, Okay. You see that blue line? Below that blue line is the missions. These are the sending of the Son and the Spirit in salvation history. And everything above that is the processions of God, okay? Now, this chart is meant to show you, it's meant to show you, oh, it's behind the drum kit. It's meant to show you that the movement of the Father and the Son, in which the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, eternally from the Father, And the movement of the Spirit, which is eternally from the Father, is then mirrored in God's work of salvation. Can you see that? This is one of the coolest things ever, okay? This is the, like, like when I saw this, I started crying. Like, I I just realized, like, our salvation, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ in sending the Son and the Spirit 
is something in which God is inviting us into his own internal life. The eternal uh, filiation of the Son, the eternal spiration of the Spirit. See, now look, I'm giving you theology words. I'm sorry, okay? Uh, but the eternal fromness, okay? Uh, Fred Sanders says, when God the Father sends the Son, it's because the Son was always from the Father without getting further away from the Father. The Father and the Son were always in a relationship of the Son being from the Father with the Son forever saying, I'm from you, and the Father being the one saying forever to the Son, you're from me. And then we could add, and the Spirit saying to the Father, I'm from you, and, and, the, and the Father saying to the Spirit, you're from me. And they're always from each other in their shared being. One being, three persons. It's, it's incredible. We call this eternal relations. It's the idea that there is a relation of origin, our principle, um, that technical word is procession. There's a procession that's taking place eternally within God's self, dynamically, but it never leaves God's self, that eternal generation of procession. In the being of God, there is a continual coming forth, a fromness of the Son and the Spirit from the Father. And this is at the core of the doctrine of the Trinity, that the life of the living God has within it a procession that stays within the being of God. And this constant going forth stays in and is a dynamic to the life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's not meant to be a Rubik's Cube. It's meant to be something that we dwell on. Now, I could keep, make it less of a Rubik's Cube if I get another shot at the Trinity. I'm not going to spend time developing eternal relations right now because it takes a little bit. But it's not, it's not the reason why you have one being and three persons. Okay, I'm not going to go too far into this. But it's, it's not like saying that there's three and one. We use that, but it's not three and one. It's, three, it's, it's, it's one something and three something, and that's important because if, it's just, if you say that one is three and three is one, you're just being illogical, okay? So the being and the person is important. We'll get into it. All right, you know. Okay, let's move on, okay. Uh, something I want you to see, though, here is that the, processions, uh, the procession is necessary and the mission is not, okay? Um, and that's something I've already pointed out, Okay? Uh, the procession is necessary. God is eternally, necessarily triune. God stepping into history and inviting us into salvation, which then reflects his own inner Trinitarian life, is not. Um, and so this is the coolest thing. This is what I want to drive home. That, that basically, God deployed his very internal life in his work of salvation. That's what it means, that God has deployed his internal life into his salvation. The life of God, which has eternally existed, then becomes manifested in the way in which the Father sends the Son and the Spirit. Michael Reeves, in a book called Delighting in the Trinity, says, the Father sent his Son to make himself known, meaning not that he wanted simply to download some information about himself, but that the love the Father eternally had for the Son might be in those who believe in him. This is incredible. And that we might enjoy the Son as the Father always has. Ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love in fellowship. For God so loved the Son that he sent his only begotten Son. I'm an inveterate matchmaker. Uh, it's true. Like, my whole life I've been a matchmaker. I'm just always, you know, there's, there's children in this world that exist because I'm like, hey, maybe him and her, you know? No, I'm not kidding. But since falling in love with my wife, like, my matchmaking has gone on steroids. 
I'm like, oh my gosh, what about him? What's behind that? I love my wife so much. I'm like, I want other people to experience this love. God's salvation is because the Father so loved the Son that the Father wanted so much for us to experience that same, that same love he has for his Son. That the, that the, within the being of God, there is a love that's beyond imagination, and the Father wanted so badly for you and me to know what it means to have that perfect love. That he sent his son, and the son and the father collaborated and then involved the spirit such that we could be invited into that same love and cry out, Abba, Father. That's amazing. There's not a more beautiful story in the world. I'm a Christian because I can't get over it. I haven't worked out some math formula. I can't get over this story. So what does this add? What does this Trinity stuff add? It doesn't add shamrocks and ice cubes and water. It explains the best news there ever was. And as we begin to read our Bibles more Trinitarianly, we're going to see things we've never seen before. We already knew them. We already experienced them. We already knew that God loved us. Our Father loves us. We pray to our Father. We already know that the Son died for us. But it's going to become deeper you know, one of the things I had that was amazing is um, a friend of mine got married, and his father-in-law, his new father-in-law-to-be, was actually in charge of conservation. And he took me and some others as part of the, this is the bachelor party. I'm like, this is the coolest bachelor For me, I'm a nerd. I'm like, this is the coolest bachelor party ever. And we got to go on a hike, and he pointed everything out because his job was to protect that wilderness. And, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd walked through that before. I'd, you know. But it's like, I mean, it's like you guys that do these foraging classes with Scott, right? It's like suddenly you're like, oh, I had no, oh, wow, that's a California cedar. Cool. Okay. You're like, suddenly something that you've experienced your whole life, suddenly you realize there's a depth here. There's something so beautiful. And that's what the doctrine of Trinity does. As we begin to read things through the doctrine of Trinity, we see the depth and the beauty of the salvation we've already experienced. And so one of the takeaways, some of you got to have application, you know, the gospel, if, if I've just like illustrated the gospel, that is the application, right? I mean, but you have to have an application. Here's the first thing. Our salvation is wrapped up in the Trinity. Uh, John Gill, famous uh, 17th century, 18th century Baptist uh, theologian, says the doctrine of the Trinity is often represented as a speculative point of no great moment, whether it is believed or not, but alas, it enters into the whole of our salvation, and all parts of it into all the doctrines of the gospel. That was my whole sermon. He just he kind of summarized where I was trying to go. So thanks, John. That's good. Um, my prayer is that we don't stop here. My prayer is that we go into other... I've just, I've just talked about adoption today. Just one of the doctrines of the gospel, adoption. John Gill says you can do this with sanctification. You can do this with justification. You can do this with communion. You can take all the wealth, all the riches we have because of what Jesus has done, and you can understand the Trinitarian depths. Don't stop here. Go to Romans 8. Go to John 17. Go to Ephesians. Oh, my gosh. Ephesians 2.18. Through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Oh, my gosh. Another silver bullet text. That was just a freebie right there, okay, for all you one verse only. Okay, there it is. Notice the way the Trinity is wrapped up here. Through Christ and the Spirit, we have access to the Father. Access is a worship word. You can't just go straight to a holy God. You need access. Through Christ, we have access. We can go straight there to our Father. Love it. So number one, our salvation is wrapped up in the Trinity. Number two, our mission in life is wrapped up in the Trinity. Our mission in life is wrapped up to the Trinity. You know, in John chapter uh, 20, Jesus is risen from the dead. 
He goes to the disciples. They're hiding in a room. <laughs> Isn't it good to know, like, the disciples are like that? I mean, that would be us. That'd be me. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, our leader died. Stay low. He's hiding in a room. They're hiding in a room. He shows up. He shows them the wound in the side. He shows them the, the, the nail scars in his hands. And then he says, peace be with you. They needed some peace, right? He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. And then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father sent the Son and the Spirit, we are sent. We are sent. We've been let in on the very source and meaning of the cosmos. The fullness of time, the Father has sent the Son and the Spirit, the very outworking, the deployment of his own internal relations. And this is the good news that the Father now sends us to share so that we might make disciples, immersing them, baptizing them into this good news that they can have God as their Father, they can know the Son as their Savior, that they can have the comfort of the Spirit. We can't share the gospel without sharing the Trinity, and we shouldn't. 